0: Uh, welcome to you all on this lovely sunny day. Uh, firstly, I'll introduce myself. My name is Mick Cox. I'm in the Department of International Relations here at the London School of Economics and co-director of the Centre called Ideas uh, with uh, my other co-director, uh, Arne Westad. Um, I was especially pleased to be asked by tonight's speaker to uh, chair him. Dare I even call it an honour and a privilege to do so. Uh, why? Uh, firstly, because Barry has become a very good friend over the last few years since we've both been together here at the LSE, since 2002 and 2003, a friendship I've much appreciated and will continue to cherish. Secondly, because like me, he likes good wine and good food, and together we have sampled much of that around London and indeed at his own house, for which many great, uh, much gratitude both to him and to his, to his partner and wife. And thirdly and finally... Most importantly, I suppose, uh, because he is a very great scholar with a global uh, reputation, and I mean that. I'm trying to think of a phrase to describe Barry, and I'll just call him one of the big beasts of IR. And I mean that in the best sense of the word beast. Um, Barry as a beast has a reputation which has been here for a very long time. Uh, Based on a formidable output, I'd almost say enviable, sometimes extremely annoying. People write articles, Barry does books. You finish an article in one year, Barry does two books in one year. He's both a wonderful inspiration to all his colleagues, but one of those colleagues you really, really don't like sometimes because he shows you up. But it's been a formidable output, really quite formidable output on an extraordinary range of subjects, but with a theoretical intent, I think, broadly speaking, if I say broadly speaking, within that large pluralist school called the English School, with which Barry has uh, been much associated and has probably done more to promote in the broader sense of that word, I think, over the last few years, both in Britain and in Europe, Copenhagen in particular, and of course in the United States of America. Whether in the United States of America they still understand or even understand what the English School actually means, Barry still remains to be seen. Uh, Barry has uh, been at many, many uh, universities, at Warwick, Westminster, but I think he's returned, really, to his alma mater here at the LSE, where he did his PhD, and returned, as I said, uh, just a while ago, in 2002, 2003. I could go through all of his books, all of his articles. Uh, they're big books. They're influential articles, People, States, and Fears, which I was very pleased to republish, two or three years ago when I was chair of the European Consortium of Political Research. It was great to bring out one of the great classics of IR. Barry has written on regionalism, international security, and now has turned his attention to, uh, to the 19th century and the importance of the 19th century in the formation of the international order. But Barry just doesn't do theory. Barry also does those things we sometimes call facts. And he's been doing quite a lot of facts recently on the question of power transition, where the world is and where the world is going to and that really is the subject of his lecture this evening and it's not equality growth and sustainability and impossible (laughs) combination thank you very much I nearly got you wrong there Barry Uh, (laughs) I know what it is but I just I just want to make sure people previously he was speaking on gay liberation and now he's speaking on where are we? You're not speaking on Twitter. This is uh, this is very LSE. I have to say, you know, we ah, uh, oh, there we are. There we are. You spot my best line there, by the way, but I'll forgive you. Very sorry. Oh, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Anyway, tonight Barry is speaking on a world without superpowers, a decent globalism. I know there's lots of friends, students, colleagues, and others in the audience, so I wonder if we could give Barry a very, very special round of applause. Barry, who's out?
1: Okay, well, I'd like to start by thanking um, LSE Ideas uh, and the IR Department for organizing this. And a particular thanks to to Mick um, for uh, turning up. He's just back from uh, Italy and probably would have liked to have stayed there rather than uh, uh, than coming back here. Uh, But uh, Mick has chaired uh, my talks at the LSE on a number of occasions, so it seemed like it was appropriate uh, that he do this one as well. Um, And it's particularly good of him to do it because I I have the feeling that he's not entirely sold on the argument that, uh, that I'm about to make. Um, so the fact that he's willing to sit there and grit his teeth is, uh, <laughs> is much appreciated. Now, what I want to do here is make uh, something like a public policy argument, which is not something that I'm uh, normally much given to doing. But I've become a bit annoyed in some ways by the way in which the public debate and also, the academic debate about, as it were, where the world is going um, has t- has ended up in a rather restricted form um, it 's basically too america centric sorry mick um, but it's it 's too america centric in a number of different ways that there 's a, a debate going on about Essentially, whether the United States is going to be able to hang on to being the sole superpower and within that a debate uh, the kind of softer view the Iconberry view if you will um, that America can hang on but it will have to be a bit more accommodating, a bit nicer to uh, to other rising powers, or um, the Steve Walt view that America basically has a big power gap going in its favor um, and conti- can continue, in a sense, to, uh, to dictate to the world or to dominate the international system. So there's an argument that the U.S. can stay on as the sole superpower and that this is a fairly stable uh, situation. The other argument um, is that Uh, Is the kind of rise of China argument, um, sometimes rise of India. Uh, This is an argument that at some point we're going to have more than one superpower, so that China is rising and there will be then some kind of rivalry between um, the United States and China and any other countries that uh, seem to be moving up into the superpower ranks, so that we'll go, in a sense, back to a structure, although not necessarily a world politics, a bit like the Cold War, where there was more than one superpower in play. Now, these scenarios basically are very American-centric, and they require the rest of the world to either balance against the United States or to bandwagon with it in some way. And I don't think that really tells us as much as we need to know about how to think of the options as to how the present international system is unfolding. Because it seems to me there's a third option. I hesitate to use the term third way, um, which doesn't have a very good record in some respects uh, uh, in the things it's been applied to, but it is a kind of third way. And rather than talking about one superpower or more than one superpowers, I want to talk about the possibility of a world with no superpowers. Right? And there's a secular tendency in this, uh, in this direction. We, you know, we arguably had uh, three at the end of the Second World War, and then we had two. Um, and then after the end of the Cold War, we had one. Um, and this points in a particular direction of which the next way station <laughs> is zero. Okay? Um, now, that's the argument I want to make. Now, as Mick advertised me, I I have some theoretical pretensions here, so you've got to do a little bit of theoretical work in order to follow this uh, argument. First of all, you need to buy into a particular set of distinctions. Um, and and The principal one is between superpowers and great powers. Superpowers are, as the name implies, um, big uh, and system-dominating. In other words, superpowers have Uh, both the material capability and the social standing to operate globally uh, and to influence in a major way things that happen all over the planet. Great powers are, first of all, not superpowers. They are big powers that have influence in more than one region. Think, for example, of the moment of, say, China. Um, or the EU, come to that, if you think of that as, a, uh, as qualifying as a great power. But, um, and then the next phase down is regional powers, where you might want to think about countries like South Africa um, or Brazil or India, uh, whose power at the moment is mainly exercised within their region. Now, these distinctions may seem a little arcane, but they are, in fact, quite important, because a lot of the IR discourse does not make the distinction between superpowers and great powers. And this distinction is, in my view, important, because the argument I'm going to make is that it's superpowers, particularly these powers that have the capability and the social standing to operate globally and to dominate the system in, in a global way. It's this that's the endangered species. Uh, We're not going to run out of great powers and regional powers anytime soon uh, but the scenario I want to unfold is one in which great powers will be as it were the top of the line um, and that therefore there will be no uh, globally operating powers uh, as there have been uh, for uh, uh, many decades. So these uh, these distinctions are important. Um, I don't want to get Involved in uh, a lot of uh, definition mongering or anything like that, but uh, it's important to think that in qualifying to be a superpower or a great power, you've got to have both material capabilities um, and also a, the right kind of social standing. Now, this is, for those of you who've studied international relations, this is kind of Kenneth Waltz versus Hedley Bull. And in my version of this story, Hedley Bull is going to do better than Kenneth Waltz, although Waltz is going to score some points along the way. But uh, basically, it seems to me that much of the the discourse as I described it um, in relation to uh, the American-centric way of thinking about the future is putting too much emphasis on the material side uh, of what qualifies you to be a superpower or a great power and not enough emphasis on the social side. And it seems to me that the social side is what makes the big difference. So I'm going to make quite a lot of play out of that. It means, therefore, that uh, there are options other than uh, bandwagoning with the US or balancing against the US, basically the third option is ignore the US. The Americans may continue to try to lead, but we don't have to listen to them. Um, And increasingly, I think, if you look at the news with this idea in mind, there's more and more of that going on, Um, that the U.S. may be saying things, uh, but fewer and fewer people are paying any attention. Now, I'm going to make two kinds of arguments in favor of this third way, no superpowers world. One is quite um, a historical argument. Um, which goes back, as Mick mentioned, to, uh, to the 19th century um, and is a generalized argument about the nature um, and distribution of power in the world. Uh, and I'm going to f- cover that fairly briefly because there's another paper on, uh, on that in more detail. Um, the, um, uh, the main part of the argument is going to be um, about who are the current candidates for superpower status. Uh, and why I think they either won't stay there um, or won't get there. And then I'll end up uh, towards uh, the conclusion of this in uh, speculating a little bit about the nature of a zero superpower world, a world with only great powers in it. What would this look like? Would it be uh, a good thing or not? And at the very end, um, I'll do that most unusual of things for me. I'll give you some policy prescriptions, five of them, to to take away uh, and think about in relation to this topic. So, let me start with the general argument and just sketch it out briefly. We take superpowers for granted because they've always been around. Um, Since uh, the end of the Second World War, we've talked uh, about superpowers, and you can, um, if you want to, push this idea further back as well. Some historians talk about Britain as a superpower Um, in the 19th century, when Britain had a particularly commanding global position uh, in the world. And it seems to me that the 19th century is important here because this was the time when a particularly big power gap developed between the modernizing West um, and most of the rest of the world, based on the fact that the modernizing West was acquiring a new mode of power, international relations is obsessed with the distribution of power and doesn't think enough about the mode of power. Um, and What happened in the 19th century was is, is basically a shift uh, from an agrarian mode of power, which had been around for a very long time, to a thoroughly industrial mode of power. And When this shift happened, it gave a relatively small number of countries an, an extraordinarily big power advantage over those uh, that hadn't made this transition. This kind of advantage um, can be seen, uh, for example, in the the Opium Wars in 1840 um, in which Britain was able to beat up China um, very easily without even breaking a sweat just by using a few gunboats and some local forces taken from its its Indian Empire. Um, Now, to be able to do that to take on and defeat uh, the largest and most capable remaining um, classical agrarian power suggests an imbalance of power of a very large order. And the, the point I want to make is that that imbalance of power took off in the 19th century when some countries began to industrialize and left the rest behind so it gave a small number of countries quite literally the ability to operate economically and militarily and politically on a global scale uh, without anybody really being able to impose uh, to oppose them in any very effective way and this is what has produced the world in which superpowers have been able to operate, uh, and indeed able to exist, uh, that world which we take for granted because we've always lived in it. Uh, International relations as a a discipline has, in a sense, always lived in this kind of world. So we don't think about it very much. We assume superpowers are normal. uh, But in a longer historical perspective, superpowers aren't thoroughly abnormal. This is not a natural condition of the international system. In classical times, um, the the distribution of power was more even, but it was more even in a much looser system. Um, The system didn't become tightly integrated in terms of uh, transportation and communication and the ability to fight global wars uh, really until the 19th century. So this phenomenon, as it were, got going as a consequence of the industrial and other revolutions of the 19th century, which opened up this huge power gap and a- enabled a small number of countries to, uh, to dominate the system. So the big argument I want to make, in a sense the big background argument, uh, is that the particular conditions that have allowed and enabled superpowers to exist and operate and to appear normal are temporary conditions. They arise out of that transformation in the 19th century. And if you begin to think of things in this way, then where we are now is the beginning of the end of that period. So we are um, coming to the end of the period when that transformation in the mode of power happened, and the reason we're coming to the end of it is captured in the current phrase the rise of the rest, um, which probably most of you have heard in one context or another. The rise of the rest basically means that lots of other parts of the world, not all of it, but lots of other parts of the world are catching up, meaning they are coming to terms with and finding their feet within um, the revolutions of modernity that happened in the 19th century and which have been evolving ever since. Um, and therefore, the, the great power gap that opened up between the West and the rest in the 19th century is closing. So the the macro argument for a world without superpowers is that the particular conditions which enabled them are disappearing that it will no longer be possible for any country to acquire either the material conditions or the relative amount of power necessary to to dominate and play a global superpower role because too many others will also have uh, decent amounts of power in the system. Power is becoming more uh, diffused in the system as this revolution of modernity uh, catches up. So rise of China, rise of India, rise of the rest is about saying that the peculiar circumstances and the peculiar gap in power that opened up during the 19th century are now coming to an end. So if you put your mind forward a couple of centuries and look back at this time, my argument would be that it's quite likely that that that's how this time will be understood when the transition that happened in the 19th century, in a sense, uh, uh, began to become to completion and we move into an era where um, uh, those kinds of capabilities are more widely spread in the system. So that's the broad argument that... This is a peculiar phenomenon, not a normal phenomenon, not a natural (coughs) phenomenon, and the conditions that gave rise to it are coming to an end. Okay, let me now move on to look at particular cases. If I'm going to argue that we're heading into a world without superpowers, I have to deal, it seems to me, with the United States, because I have to make an argument I'm not disputing that the United States is a superpower. Um, What I'm saying is it's probably not going to remain one for too much longer. Uh, And I have to argue that those countries or entities that are discussed mainly as rising superpowers are not going to make it. And here I'm going to focus mainly on China, but I'll also say something about the EU, since, to my surprise at any rate, uh, there's still quite a lively literature on the EU as a potential superpower. Um, uh, I don't believe this for an instant, so I'm not going to spend long on the EU, uh, and I'm not going to talk about Russia at all. Um, I'm, I'm a bit infamous for the view that Russia is down and out and not coming back, um, but we can deal with that um, in the Q and A if you think there are candidates I've missed out. Okay, so let's uh, let's start with the with the US. Now I'm not really going to make much of an argument about the material capacity of the U.S. Um, the United States is still the strongest country in a variety of ways, um, and it's holding reasonably well to the, you know, the kind of percentage of material power uh, that it has. Um, it's got a big military lead over everybody else, and that's not going to disappear very quickly. So I don't particularly want to argue that the US is going into some precipitate material decline. I don't think there's any particular evidence um, for that. Uh, it's going to be uh, increasingly constrained, I think, by the, uh, the rise of other powers. But it's, it, this is basically not, um, not a material issue, although the material issue is in the background as others, uh, others rise. It's principally, I think, um, a social issue. And one of the things that is, um, I think, a weakness in the general discussion of the United States as a superpower um, is that most of the emphasis is on its material su- superiority. It's on um, its big economy, it's on uh, uh, its enormous military expenditure compared to the rest of the world, uh, et cetera., etc. And I don't think that the United States position as the sole superpower rests. Um, solely or possibly even mainly um, on its material superiority. That's a necessary part of it, um, of course, but basically the United States' position as the sole superpower also rests very substantially on a variety of social conditions, the principal one of which um, is that uh, some of the other big centers of powers in the system, mainly uh, Europe Europe, Uh, and Japan do not regard the United States as a threat um, and in some important ways uh, subordinate their uh, foreign policy and their general outlook to it. They don't challenge um, the United States. They don't uh, balance against it in uh, in any significant way. So the United States has had a very powerful standing um, as a legitimate leader and it's had a very powerful standing also as the representative of a certain kind of ideology, uh, which uh, we can loosely call liberalism. Um, uh, And that ideology has universal pretensions, and and this has also underpinned um, America's position. So One of the things I want to argue is that that social standing is weakening in a whole variety um, of ways. It's also possible to argue that, um, and here I'm picking up Headley-Bull-type themes again, Um, that standing as a superpower requires uh, the uh, support, um, domestically the support of your citizenry and and of your internal establishment. And it is surprisingly easy to find um, quite large numbers of commentators, uh, including American commentators, on the condition of the United States who point to the fact that maybe um, America's superpower standing is more likely to be undermined by Americans than by anybody else um, if the American citizenry loses the will or the interest or, or the willingness to pay um, for this global superpower role. Uh, being in the global superpower hasn't been a lot of fun of late um, for uh, the United States. There have been lots of costly failures. Um, American Politics is now extremely um, divided and, in a sense, um, paralysed in a way that it didn't uh, it didn't used to be. So, an argument can can be made that domestic support in the U.S. for continuing on with this global role may not be all that robust. But I want to focus more on, uh, in a sense, America's global position because it seems to me that it's. Its global standing, as I say, is as much dependent on its social position um, as uh, on its material capability. And here we can look at three things. We can look at uh, American policies. We can look at America as a model in the world. Um, and we can look also at the idea that any, any one country should be um, allowed to, uh, to dominate the world or to you know, play a hegemonic role. Start with policies, then. Uh, I am not going to make the argument uh, that there was ever a golden age in which the United States was loved by everybody, and all of its policies um, were uh, thought well of. Uh, Mick, as a good old trot, will certainly remember opposing American policy at various uh, stages of his uh, of his life. Uh, but I think the uh, one of the important things about the ending of the Cold War, uh, Another, another Mick theme here so I hope, you're, I hope you're picking up on this this one's for you Mick but um, an important theme about the ending of the Cold War is that in a sense it stripped away part um, of what made American policy more acceptable Um, So, whether you liked American policies or not, and a lot of people didn't like a lot of American policies, think of uh, the Vietnam War, for example, the general framing of the Cold War meant that America was on our side or we were on its side, um, and that therefore one had at least to put up with these things uh, for the sake of the greater good of American leadership. That framing of things disappeared with the ending of the Cold War. So American policies now stand out there by themselves with no particular other um, uh, protections or justifications to uh, to make them uh, as acceptable in the, in the way that they were during the Cold War. Now, I don't want to dwell um, for a great length of time on American policies, but there are a lot of American policies that don't have a lot of support, um, most obviously, of course, um, think of American policy in the Middle East uh, mainly seen by others as a bit disastrous the peculiarities of American policy towards Israel um, the not so successful population, uh, uh, policy in, uh, in Iraq all of this um, is not something that has engendered a great deal of support um, uh, uh, for uh, American policy in, uh, in the world You could think now, of course, also, that American economic policy has been in a parlous condition um, since the economic crisis starting in 2008. I think it's not going too far to say that um, the Washington consensus, which was the ideological underpinning of of American policy, um, if it hasn't quite collapsed, it has at least taken a tremendous beating and no longer has the kind of cachet that it once did. America has become quite protectionist, quite um, self-serving in many respects. Um, it's no longer um, so obviously uh, an economic leader in the way that it used to be, and the ideas that it's peddling um, are looking a lot more flawed than they used to be. And this, I think, has gravely weakened the, uh, the social and political cachet um, of the American brand in, in the world one could think about environmental policy um, on which uh, the U.S. is generally seen as being more part of the problem than as part of the solution, Um, that the American way of life, which no American politician can afford not to defend, is seen by uh, many others as being part of the problem when uh, it comes to the environmental agenda uh, and the rather obstructionist role that uh, American governments have played in that. You could think of the war on drugs, not one of the great uh, successes of American policy, not one that has a, um, a vast amount of support elsewhere. I'm tempted also to think about American policy towards China and I could, could go on about this for quite a long time although since the Chinese, uh, over the last couple of years, the Chinese government has been playing a more uh, belligerent role in, in, its, in its neighborhood. Um, this argument isn't as strong as when I first Made it, but a case can be made that um, the United States is has a very particular interest in securitizing China and the rise of China because the United States is the only country threatened by the rise of China in the sense that uh, if you follow a realist logic, the rise of China has to threaten um, America's position as the sole superpower, and the American government is on record as saying that it wants to maintain that position as the sole superpower. So no matter what the Chinese do, if they succeed in rising, they're going to threaten that um, American position. This is nothing like the Cold War, when the United States was able to gather together a large number of allies um, uh, because there was seen to be common ground in relation to what was defined um, as a, a shared threat from the Soviet Union possibly Japan will share um, America's view. But it's quite conceivable that the Europeans and others um, will not care very much about the rise of China, particularly um, if the Chinese government manages to do a better job than it has done over the last couple of years of actually um, uh, paying attention to its own rhetoric about uh, peaceful rise and peaceful development. So it's conceivable that... The United States could, in a sense, get involved in a rivalry with China that isn't going to be of interest to anybody else because only the United States, um, the status of the United States, is threatened by the rise of China. So, in a whole variety of policy ways, um, America is not doing very well in terms of inspiring followers. Lots of aspects of American policy um, are less attractive than they used to be. And I think it extends from that fairly easily to say that the American role as a model, um, as a model society, as it were, uh, the, uh, the American, uh, American political rhetoric is, is famous for, in a sense, claiming to own the future. Um, that. The United States uh, often thinks of itself, and it's uh, very much a feature of American political rhetoric, um, that America is the right uh, way of doing things. Think of Francis Fukuyama um, and the end of history type argument. This is basically that the United States has has got the best answers to all of the problems of how to live uh, the good life and that eventually the world will become uh, like the United States, a Star Trek world, if you will. Um, where the whole universe has become um, Americanized. <laughs> now, this, it seems to me, this was a good sell for, um, uh, for a long time. America was a very attractive society. It was rich. Um, it had a vibrant culture. It was successful in all kinds of ways. It's not looking so good now. Um, who would want American health care? Um, who would want American economic policy? Um, who would want American politics come to that, this kind of nasty venal, uh, highly divided politics the things that America used easily to be able to stand for it can no longer stand for so easily Um, uh, I've mentioned already um, the uh, the economic crisis of 2008, and the gutting of the Washington consensus. Um, so America is no longer representing a kind of right set of ideas about how to run the economy. Um, and on the more social and political side of liberalism, it seems to me the war on terror, and particularly the uh, shenanigans of the Bush administration in conducting that war, um, have really gutted um, uh, America's ability to speak for a liberal agenda. Um, the the use of torture, the human rights violations uh, in uh, the conducting of the war on terror, whether you were a supporter of that war or not, have undermined um, the ability of the United States to um, speak for this liberal human rights type of agenda, which it used to do, and still does. But now when Americans speak about this, um, the Chinese and the Russians and others just laugh and say Guantanamo or Abu Ghraib. Um, so the ability, the traction, as it were, um, of the United States to represent those agendas um, has, I think, been, uh, been seriously weakened. And I think the last point to make, and it's a point I'm going to apply to the, um, the other possible candidates in this game, is that the, simply the idea that any one country should be the leader, um, or should have a hegemonic role in the system, This idea, I think, is going out of fashion. It's never been very popular uh, in many parts of the world, but it seems that uh, along with the phenomenon of the rise of the rest, as others gain more power, the idea that um, any one country should have some kind of hegemonic uh, position here um, is decreasingly popular. Uh, So I I, um, I take the rise of the rest um, as, in a sense, um, looking towards the demise of the legitimacy of uh, a hegemonic role in the system. The idea of a hegemonic role has always been difficult in a world in which sovereign equality is the notional uh, key organizing principle, um, and I think it's going to get uh, more and more difficult. And since I've not been very kind to Ken Waltz, um, so far. Let me, let me uh, score a point on his behalf. Writing in 1993, okay, a long time ago, Waltz says this, countries that wield overwhelming power will be tempted to misuse it, and even when their use of power is not an abuse, other states will see it as being so. That's a pretty good summary, I think, of what's happened um, to the United States uh, over the last uh, couple of decades. Okay, so my sense of the U.S. is that its position, it's, it's still a superpower, it's still the only superpower, um, but its position is fragile, um, and it, uh, to my mind it seems a plausible argument uh, that the United States will um, increasingly lose the social foundations uh, on which its global superpower legitimacy has been based. Let me turn then to China, which is the obvious um, kind of most discussed candidate for um, a rising superpower. I'm going to use the same kind of formula, looking at the uh, uh, the material and the and the social characteristics. Now, the material characteristics on uh, China's side are fairly impressive. This is a country whose economy has been growing at a stupendous, unprecedented rate um, for uh, a surprising number of decades and still seems to be steaming along. So there's a reasonable expectation that uh, China is rising and rising fast and will probably be able to sustain um, this continuously expanding material position. It clearly has quite a long way to go in a whole variety of, of areas. It's got quite a lot of catching up to do to, uh, to get to uh, American uh, or indeed uh, Western standards as a whole. But it's a very impressive performance. So in a sense, um, like America, the material case isn't where the main action lies. Uh, the main argument uh, regarding China um, In some ways, it's arguments that parallel those of the U.S., uh, but the main argument regarding China uh, is that it simply doesn't have the social resources necessary uh, to construct a legitimate superpower role. On the material side of things, the Chinese have the same problem as the U.S. with the rise of the rest. China is rising, but so is India and Brazil and a lot of other places. So whilst China is getting stronger, a lot of other places are getting stronger as well, And therefore, the ability of any uh, kind of new aspirant to superpower status to actually achieve the level of material dominance necessary uh, to uh, act as the foundation for superpower status uh, is becoming more and more difficult. But let's think about the social issues in, uh, in relation to China. I suggested when talking about the U.S. that a goodly chunk of America's superpower status was based on the fact that it had friends. Okay? Europe, Japan, and, and a variety of others. Part of what I see as the demise of, uh, or the weakening of American superpower uh, uh, position is that the Americans no longer appreciate that they have friends. Americans used to talk about allies. Now they talk about coalitions of the willing. Um, There's a very big difference in those rhetorics, it seems to me. But if you think about the Chinese, who are China's friends? Does China have any consequential friends at all? Any great power friends? Any regional power friends? No. Not one. China's friends are a miserable collection of small, mostly rather nasty dictatorships in a variety of parts of the world. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. You think about it. Who are China's friends? Um, So China's starting social position here is poor. China's policies um, are perhaps not such a problem as uh, American policies because China has been uh, still, uh, and still is, uh, conducting itself according to the um, uh, the famous dictums of Deng Xiaoping um, about keeping a low profile and not taking leadership positions, and not trying to uh, reveal one's power, etc., um, etc. Et so China's been taking a you know we'll get along with everybody uh, point of view, often abstains in the um, in the Security Council, it not really taken um, a leading or a, a political. Uh, uh, position on most of the major global issues. It's been relatively self, uh, self-interested self and self-concerned, so it hasn't offended as many people as the US um, has done, because it hasn't tried to do anything other than pursue uh, its own particular self-interest. But the problem for China is that um, it's it's, it's not really a model for uh, any other countries because its own circumstances are so unique uh, that it isn't clear that China holds and um, that Chinese policy um, holds lessons for others. Uh, and the Chinese themselves do not encourage others to think this. So one of the the, uh, the uh, much heard catchphrases um, in China is Chinese characteristics, which is a way of, of basically saying that. Chinese exceptionalism, unlike American exceptionalism, Chinese exceptionalism is basically inward-looking. It says China is different and unique, um, whereas American exceptionalism says you should all be like us um, and can be if you, uh, if you want to be. So there's a kind of inward-looking um, self-understanding which lacks the uh, the universalist appeal that America uh, exploited so effectively for its uh, many decades of world leadership. The Chinese are also trying to sell um, a particular combination of uh, of things, which I think is not going to go down very well with um, the other powers in the system. What the Chinese are trying to sell is uh, a combination, rather odd combination, of economic liberalism, getting on board with the WTO and the the global market and all of that um, but combined with um, keeping um, an undemocratic communist government very conservative um, very illiberal uh, regime in many ways uh, uh, politically and this combination um, is one that rouses suspicions quite rightly in my view um, in the minds of others because basically the, uh, the liberal deal in the world is that people accept economic interdependence and the opening up of a global economy on the condition that those who go into this game uh, are also liberal politically and socially, and therefore don't threaten each other. Um, but the country which is just buying, as it were, the economic liberal side of this package, but not buying... Um, the uh, the political uh, and social side of the liberal package is potentially threatening it will get strong on the back of the global economy um, but it's still um, as it were running itself as, uh, as a dictatorship and Chinese rhetoric doesn't help here either um, in the sense that uh, the Chinese rhetoric of peaceful rise of which I'm a strong um, supporter uh, does have the problem with it that it's, it doesn't say what it is that China wants to be like or what kind of international society it wants to be part of once it's risen. So there's no ideas coming out of China about what kind of power we should expect it to be or what kind of agenda we should expect it to be pushing. The basic um, message that comes out of Beijing is that, um, and it's not an unreasonable one in some ways, Uh, But they're basically saying, look, we're responsible for a fifth of the world's population. We've got huge problems in dealing with that. If we can develop this fifth of the world's population, that's our contribution to the world. Because that will increase the world's wealth and it will increase the science and the arts and all of these things if we can do this. And they've been doing a pretty impressive job having lifted several hundred million people um, out of uh, poverty and agrarian life into something like um, a middle class standard of living um, over the last 20 years. So China isn't it isn't a model, it isn't selling any ideas which look likely to be attractive to um, a wider global market. They might be attractive to some countries, some in its region, a few um, elsewhere, but China is not representing any kind of coherent ideology. I mean, its own, its domestic ideology can only be labeled market communism. Now, if you think about that for a while, that's a fairly serious oxymoron. How stable can market communism be? Something has to give. Um, Either the market has to give um, or communism has to give. They can't coexist uh, forever. Marx would be turning in his grave. (laughs) So it seems to me, although the Chinese performance is very impressive, um, it's not on the way to being a superpower. It's got quite a long way to go materially, um, and it will certainly uh, it's a great power already and will certainly stay there. But on the social side of things, it has no ideas, nothing to sell, and no friends. So its starting position is pretty poor, and it doesn't look possible to create a superpower position from that base. I said I'd deal briefly with the EU, and I'll keep keep my word on this. I mean, the EU is in some ways um, quite impressive as a potential superpower. Material base is there, it's got a modern economy and and all of that. Okay, it's militarily rather modest, um, but that could be changed fairly quickly if there was a will to do so. in, in terms of uh, the EU as a model, it's quite widely admired, more so by people who are not members of it than people who are. Um, but nonetheless, in, in the world out there, um, the EU, uh, it doesn't threaten very many people. It's got no enemies. Um, it's a nice kind of feel-good social democratic model. Um, and um, it's a very advanced integration project, which, as I say, is admired in, uh, in, in many places. Um, it doesn't trigger very many worries anywhere maybe a little bit in Russia um, but hardly anywhere else. Nobody's scared of the EU. It doesn't have uh, it doesn't trigger threat responses in uh, in others. So in some senses the EU uh, might be a possible superpower. It's got good social standing um, it's got good material capability the problem is Nobody in the EU wants to make the EU into a global superpower. The citizens don't want it. um, The elites don't want it. There is simply no political will to do this. Um, So it seems unimaginable um, that the EU is ever going to play more than the kind of big regional uh, great power role that it plays now. Okay, so if you buy those arguments, then it seems to me we're heading for a world without superpowers. I'm not quite sure how long this will take, but I'm pretty confident there won't be any new superpowers. um, And I'm reasonably confident that the US is not going to last all that long um, in that role. It will continue, of course, to be um, the biggest single power in the system for quite a long time. But that's not the same as being a superpower. So if I'm right, big if, but if I'm right, what we're heading towards is a world in which there will be mainly great powers and regional powers, but nobody uh, playing a superpower role. And let's face it, I mean, given the experience of the Americans, who would want the job um, of superpower? It's, not a, it's a very expensive, um, demanding uh, job for which you get not much um, appreciation. But the picture we're looking at here is one in which... Um, A more regionalized world, perhaps, uh, seems to be the logical outcome. We think um, of a world in which uh, there are several great powers scattered around on the different um, continents. Uh, These great powers have some differences of of ideology, but they are all basically, and this is an important point um, in the ongoing argument about why this scenario is not necessarily a bad thing, the important point here is that all of these uh, potential great powers are now basically operating some version of capitalism. Right? We're no longer in a world in which there's a great ideological debate about how to organise political economy. There's quite a lot of variation within that, but compared to say the 1930s or to the, or the Cold War, when there were zero-sum games between extremely opposed ideologies about Um, how to organize things uh, we're in a relatively uh, benign world there are differences of culture differences of practice and history that suggest regional variation um, as a not unreasonable way uh, of looking at the future now I don't particularly want to get into the argument of exactly what these regions are going to look like are there going to be lots of them or are there just going to be three or four big ones I don't know um, we can talk about that in the Q&A um, if you want. Uh, it, not so much the particular detail of a decentered world, uh, but the fact of a decentered world, the world operating now with a more even distribution of power or the movement towards such a world. Now, why sh- sh- should we not worry about such a world? There's certainly a long tradition of such worries. Um, they have been generally hinged around analogies with the 1930s, which was the last time we had this kind of decentered world. Uh, so you will often find that bogey of the 1930s is wheeled out um, in defense of American hegemony or uh, whatever. And I think this is an analogy that's more or less completely false in the sense that the 1930s um, is so radically different from where we are now um, that no lessons can be learned from it that are relevant to uh, to where we're going. It's true um, that the West uh, is declining and others are rising, um, but nobody's looking for uh, the job of world superpower. These other rising powers are not necessarily looking to take over the world or competitive with um, or opposing the existing order. Even the Chinese stress the extent to which they are a status quo power, um, anxious, as it were, to get on board with the main lines of the existing global order. So other... um, other cultures are not aggressively looking to rise and take over the world as was the case during the 1930s. They're more in a defensive position saying we'd like to get the West a bit more off our backs and do our own thing a bit more, but we don't want to take over the world. Um, this is not the a, um, a, a common view out there. I think the um, the logic of anti-hegemonism is very widespread in, in the rest of the world and that operates not only, of course, uh, against the West, but it would also operate against any other country that was trying to take over the position of the West or to move itself into a hegemonic position. Unlike in the 1930s, there are no big ideological or racial divides over which large numbers of people are prepared (laughs) to go out and kill each other, which they were in the 1930s. As I say, we're in a sense, we're far from being ideologically um, homogenous, but there's much less cultural and uh, and political economic difference in the way things are organized uh, than there was uh, during the 1930s. And this, I think, matters. There's also the fact that everybody is afraid of war. There's no appetite for a world war out there. uh, And everybody wants some Version of the global economy to keep going because everybody's going to be impoverished if it doesn't. So there's a much greater collective interest, partly um, stemming from the lessons learned in the 1930s, in keeping a, de- keeping a degree of global order. So I think this 1930s analogy is simply wrong. Um, and wherever you hear that as an argument against um, a more decentered world, you should, I think, reject it. On the upside, something which is not much um, talked about because I think the social side of things um, is ignored, so another point for for Headley Bull, um, is that despite the cultural uh, and uh, to some extent political differences that still remain in the world, which I don't want to underplay, there is a remarkable amount that's commonly shared and accepted um, quite widely across the board, and not just by elites, but by peoples. The general idea that we should organize ourselves into territorial states, which claim um, sovereignty and the right of self-government, is very widely accepted uh, and very widely aspired to by those who don't have it. The notion that we get along um, by using diplomacy and international law um, as the framing within which these, uh, these political entities deal with each other is also very widely accepted. There are disputes um, around the edges of it, but the basic principles are not, uh, not contested. The idea that the big powers in the system have some managerial responsibilities, classical English school idea, um, is also fairly widely accepted, although not up to the point of allowing them um, hegemony. Nationalism um, and the principle of national self-determination is, it seems to me, extremely widely um, accepted. In some ways it's the basic legitimizing principle um, of the whole of the international system. Popular sovereignty is not much contested. Even dictators acknowledge um, that basically popular sovereignty is what's going on. There may be a few uh, monarchies left um, in the Arabian Peninsula or one or two elsewhere who haven't got this message yet, but basically most of the rest of the world is organized um, around uh, the idea uh, of popular sovereignty. There is a shared idea of progress. No matter what ideology um, you have, practically everybody is on board with the idea that we should pursue progress, that we should pursue um, uh, an advance of knowledge, uh, an advance of uh, material capability, technology, and such like. Everybody is on board with the idea of human equality, an idea that is uh, relatively recent. Um, in the sense that you only have to go back to the middle of the 20th century and earlier to get into a period when the basic assumption of international relations was human inequality. So empire and slavery and racism and all kinds of other things were justified by the acceptance of the principle that humans were not equal. We've moved on from there, Um, and this, I think, also helps to underpin um, a common set of global values. And increasingly, everybody is in some way wedded to the market, um, as I uh, as I suggested. Uh, different versions, different takes on this, of course, um, but a much narrower set of differences than have existed um, historically. So this, it seems to me, provides even in a more decentered world, this provides a normative basis for order, which is quite impressive in some ways and should not be just. Um, ignored or dismissed. We have been building an international society and we've been quite successful at it in some ways. It seems to me also that in this kind of decentered world there will be um, room for quite uh, a lot of cooperation. There's interest in uh, pursuing a lot of things jointly, not just the global economy, um, but there will probably be. Um, interest in environmental management, um, interest in carrying on, um, as it were, collective big science in relation to space, um, high energy physics and other sorts of things. So it seems to me that we we are in a world, if I can use some terms from Alex Wendt, we are in a world that looks more like one of friends and rivals rather than rivals and enemies. There's not so much of enemies left in the system as there used to be. And therefore, the cultivation of this kind of social order is something that uh, we really need to be doing. There are some potential downsides um, in this. Um, Any of you who have strong liberal dispositions um, out there, Uh, your hearts will have been sinking as I've been talking here, although nobody's actually walked out yet, but it does seem to me that the Universalist Liberal Project is not one of the winners in the scenario that I'm painting here. Um, But the Universalist Liberal Project has not done too well over the last few decades, and therefore perhaps giving it a rest for a while um, and allowing other ideas in play um, is not so bad a thing. More worrying would be Um, If we're living in a more decentered world where regions are, in a sense, more self-organizing, some of these regions are not going to be very pretty. Uh, Africa probably is still not going to be uh, any prettier than it is now, um, and perhaps also the Middle East, although the Middle East is in such a state of ferment at the moment, it's hard to know quite uh, what the outcome there will be, and one hopes uh, that the Arab Spring will produce a good outcome. But some regions will be disorderly. Um, Other regions will do quite well. The EU is already an example of a region that's extremely well organized um, and in that sense uh, provides a kind of one possible model of how to go with this. Um, The Americas look reasonably well organized. It's conceivable that East Asia could pull itself together. It has growing regional institutions, although there's quite a big difference of opinion as to what should comprise an East Asian uh, region. So the picture that emerges out of this will be mixed. Um, Some regions will be more stable, more orderly. Some will be less. There may be some places, um, if countries like Russia and, say, China or India misplay their hands and try to become regional hegemons, then they will encounter local, uh, local resistance. It's not going to be a perfect world, therefore. But it's not going to be too bad a world either, it seems to me. Now, let me draw this to a close by then um, moving towards the five policy prescriptions that, that I offered you. Right. Now, just to sum up, I'm going to read this um, because I can't think of a better way of saying it than I've actually written out here. So. Mm-hmm. Um, This world order with superpowers might therefore be seen both as the successor to the unbalanced western era of the 19th and 20th centuries in which one civilization imposed itself massively on all of the others, and as the restoration of the classical order in which the distribution of civilization and the distribution of power were fairly evenly matched and fairly evenly distributed. The unique feature of this third way is that for the first time it combines both a relatively even global system um, and society, a global distribution of power, and a densely integrated and interdependent global system. This I'm labeling decentered globalism. This is my contribution to IR jargon for the, uh, uh, for the moment. Uh, and I contrast this decentered globalism um, with the more centered kinds of globalism captured in the many core periphery characterizations of the modern world order. So this label, I hope, um, expresses the emergence of a truly post-colonial world order, a return to the more even distribution of power of pre-modern times, but in a globally integrated context created by modernity. Now, if this model is plausible, and I say, as I say, I offer it um, as an alternative to those arguing for a continuation of the the Western status quo or for some kind of return to uh, competing um, uh, superpower arguments. What kinds of prescriptions arise from this? Well, five I'll offer you. First, there's no particular need for the United States to see off challengers to its sole superpower status because there are none. And second, that status is anyway indefensible, both socially and increasingly materially. Two, after the collapse of communism and the fall of the Washington Consensus, everyone should feel ideologically both more open and more humble and accept that what is needed is a period of competitive experimentation with the political economy of capitalism. Let the U.S. continue its love affair with economic liberalism, Europe its with social liberalism, China and Russia theirs with authoritarian capitalism, and whatever other versions of this particular mixture come up. Everyone needs to relax a bit, take a live and let live attitude, and see how these different modes succeed or fail in producing the good life. Since no known alternative path to durable power exists, the general commitment to some form of capitalism is now quite deeply rooted. Three, all great powers need to look more to their regions and how to create stable, consensual and legitimate international societies there, and perhaps somewhat less to their relationships with each other. Traditional security concerns are no longer the key factor in relations amongst the great powers. China needs to think more about its relations with Japan and Southeast Asia and less about those with the US, and the US needs to think more about its hemisphere and less about Asia and the Middle East. That is the decentering part of decentered globalism. Four. That said, all great powers also need to be aware of the substrate of ideas and institutions on which they agree, and to build on this to create not just a coexistence international society in which different modes of capitalism can live together peacefully, but also a cooperative one capable of handling joint problems such as world trade and big science and collective action problems such as the environment and nuclear proliferation. Developing an interaction culture of friends and rivals is important. Five, the West as a whole, and the US in particular, need to accept the fact that they no longer own the future. They can take some satisfaction from having imposed much of their political, economic, and social form onto the rest of the world, and so substantially shape the direction in which the future will unfold. But now they have both to acknowledge that not all of this was either good or well done, and to let the rest of the world experiment on how best to accommodate its various cultural and historical characteristics to the Western legacy. And it seems to me this is not a bad alternative to either ongoing U.S. hegemony or a struggle between rising and declining superpowers. Arguably, perhaps, it's also more likely than either of those scenarios. Thank you.
0: We have um, somewhat like 20 minutes for questions, and Barry will, of course, provide the answers. You've heard the Buzan Manifesto. Um, uh, uh, yeah, if, chap in the middle there, if you could, where's the, how many microphones do we have? Just the one? Oh, okay, fine. So take, yeah, take the chap in the middle there. Waving his Adidas at me here, there, this chap here, yeah. Okay. I'll take a couple together. Is there somebody else? Is somebody down here? Yeah, it's lady here. Be very brief with your questions, please. So I want Barry to be.
2: Okay, Professor Brand, thank you very much for a very interesting talk. I'll keep my question brief. I just want to sort of question your use of a uh, particular historical analogy there. Now, I agree with you. Uh, what's happening today, we're not in the 1930s, but I'd like to point out that the country that did end up taking over the world, United, the United States, didn't spend the 30s trying to take over the world. And it really struck me that, um, during your talk, that while I agree with you, I broadly agree with your characterization of China, um, it sort of struck me that you could have applied every one of those characteristics and descriptions to pre-World War II America, and yet America grew up to be the the superpower that dominated the world. And um, I'm just not entirely sure that, given your list of Chinese characteristics, you can be perhaps so blasé that China will not attempt to assume some form of superpower role within the international system. Soft on
0: China. You know. lady here. Very quickly.
2: Uh, yes. Not a long um, manifesto. I-, I wanted to ask, is technology evenly distributed in the world so that to, uh, to be able to avoid the, ri- the rise of another superpower in case there is uh, big problems like depletion of resources, climatic change, or another unfor- unforeseen circumstance?
0: Okay, uh, there's a gentleman just behind you, I'll take him quickly. Good brief questions. Great. Yes,
2: I do appreciate your approach on this decentralization of globalization in the world, as a system. Now, my question is, uh, do you think on this kind of a system should be, should have uh, some kind of strategy or co- cooperative approach where is dominated by, I mean, the, f- the future superpower will be who has more knowledge, more information that will, uh, let's say, coordinate with the other, uh, let's say, on on decentralisation. okay
0: OK, I'll take those three, right? just to start yep. off with. OK. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, on the parallel with the
1: US and China, uh, I, mean, I think an interesting case can be made for, uh, for drawing a parallel between the two in some respects, uh, particularly in the idea of peaceful rise. I mean, in some ways, uh, China's present strategy is most easy to compare with the strategy of the United States. In other words, economic engagement, um, but a kind of political isolationism or political unwillingness to engage with the world um, for quite a long time. Now, um, I think your analogy is going to break down here in the sense that um, the United States um, had the advantage uh, of Uh, Having its way to global power paved by two world wars that left everybody else completely wasted. Uh, um, uh, And and in this sense, the Americans were the successors to this and very wisely, or you might want to argue very cynically, uh, were late entrants to all of those wars, right? So they waited till everybody had finished beating themselves up and then came in and uh, took the spoils, as it were. Uh, So the United States had a very nice entry um, into world power. But this is not going to happen with China. I mean, the main drift of my argument is that power is now diffusing everywhere on the back of modernity, taking different forms in different places, but basically more and more people are uh, finding ways of coming to terms with modernity and drawing um, the power from it that this, uh, that this presents. So China is not going to be presented with the kind of power vacuum that, uh, that the United States uh, was presented with at the end of the Second World War. In terms of uh, technology being even, evenly distributed, um, well, um, yes and no. Um, certain kinds of technology are not evenly distributed. Uh, obviously, there's a kind of leading edge to this, and there, and there always will be. Um, so uh, in one sense, uh, I'm not expecting everything to even out and there to be a kind of uniform, again, a kind of Star Trek world in which everybody is up at exactly the same standard. On the other hand, enough technology, and uh, specifically technologies of a certain kind, are evenly distributed um, to change the, uh, the dynamics of the system in relation to dominance. So for example, to give you a very simple example, um, everybody in the world, no matter how poor and grotty, can get access to any number of AK-47s and RPGs. Right? This is a universally available technology. Even the Afghans can build AK-47s. It's a nice, simple thing. If you can arm your people with that kind of technology, it makes your country almost impossible to occupy. Okay. So as the Americans and others have discovered, um, people do not have to be equipped with very serious sorts of modern technology. It only has to be modern enough um, to make a big difference in uh, in the way the world operates. Um, does globalization need a strategy? Um, Well, I guess you could make a theoretical argument that it would be better if it had one, Um, but then you'd be uh, facing the problem that we don't have a world government and we're not likely to get one very soon, so probably we're not going to have a kind of centralized management system. We're going to have a negotiating system of some sort, which is what we've got now. Um, The the only difference that I'm positing is that it will be a more decentered negotiating system with a more even distribution Mm -hmm. of power in it rather than some countries you know, pretending that they're actually the leaders of this system and have some special right to dominate it.
0: Right, there's a question here from the chat here, and then a question at the back. Both, and I'll move on quickly. Yeah, please. Yeah,
3: just quickly. Uh, what do you think are the prospects of this system to be a stable one? to preserve its its stability and uh, do you anticipate or what if some of these rising or falling powers make the so-called securitizing move in order to preserve their own position uh,
0: against the others? Okay. Very good. Uh,
2: Thank you. Barry, in 2008 you argued that global warming is the wild card of IR up here, uh, that, globalization, uh,
0: uh, that global warming is the wild card of IR and kind of uh, for the US to, to uh, remain a superpower. Did you give up on the US on that? Or Thank you. Okay, very much. So there's two.
1: Okay. Right. Um, will the system be um, stable? Um, I think overall, yes, um, although in some parts no. Um, I mean, my basic argument okay. is that there are going to be no takers for the role of global leadership because nobody will have the capability and nobody will have the will and there will be more resistance to anybody trying to do that. Um, in, in this sense and given that there is a sub, quite a, uh, a wide substrate of things that we actually do agree about across all of the diversities that we have and given that there are big constraints on resorts to violence um, and and also a, a certain amount of agreement on things that we need to do jointly, um, I think the system probably will be fairly ordered, at least, at least as orderly as the system that we've got now. Right? I mean, one might want to argue that um, the present system has broken down because mm. there was, in, in a sense, it was too ambitious um, that the capacity for global governance that Running a neoliberal global economy required um, simply wasn 't there, uh, and that we need to take a more modest view of what what we can achieve and to focus it better you know, on particular uh, pressing problems i mean that goes to theher uh, 's question about um, about uh, the wild card of, of uh, climate change or, or global warning um, i 've left that out of this talk, as you, uh, as you rightly spot, um, partly because it's a set of unknowns. Right? Um, this is an argument I made elsewhere, for those of you who don't, uh, who don't know, that um, uh, basically uh, the environment is a kind of wild card in thinking about international relations. Um, So it's like a joker that is going to come out of the deck at some point and change the game, um, but you don't know at what point it's going to come out, and you don't know quite what the joker is going to represent when it does come out. Is it going to be a sea level rise? Is it going to be um, global warming? Is it going to be some kind of disease? Uh, the, The chance of something of this sort happening in a systemic way that makes a big impact is, I think, reasonably high over the time span in which I'm thinking here about this uh, about this new uh, global order um, and of course the whole thing could quite literally be swept away if you factor in a six meter sea level rise over the next two decades into this scenario then we're living in a different world and uh, much of the argument that I'm making would then probably disappear uh, because this argument kind of assumes mm. a a, a status quo uh, in relation to the environment. Um, Quite what would happen if there was a very big, serious environmental emergency depends on what kind of emergency it is, and would therefore take many hours to discuss. It's not just one scenario, it's any number of possible scenarios, and quite how they're going to play out. um, You can't really think about it in the same way that you can think about this narrower set of political, economic, and social problems.
0: Barry, can I ask one question? Where does Star Trek fit into this? Is this this an expression of American hegemony, but that America will never have another Star Trek? and Can China have a Star Trek? (laughs) Because I know you're interested in science fiction and what it expresses and Um, symbolises.
1: Well, Mick, Mick, you've you've obviously not read my piece on uh, Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica. I have, 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 but they (laughs) haven't. But, um, yeah, but I yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, it's actually it's an interesting um, it's an interesting image because Star Trek to me mm-hmm. represented the the peak of um, American self confidence and mm. um, uh, America as seeing itself as a universal model for the rest of the world. The inevitability that America would be the world's future um, that was just kind of taken. Uh, almost taken for granted, and Star Trek was as good a representation of any uh, of, of any as to what such a world would uh, would in fact look like. Um, America is really no longer producing Star Treks. I mean, the the odd Star Trek film that comes out is very dark, um, and, and Battlestar Galactica, which is you know, anti-technology and thoroughly depressed about the state of the universe and and the species seems more representative of America's mindset at the moment. So if you want to do a kind of pop culture interpretation of the decline of America's will to superpower, sit down there and watch Battlestar
0: Galactica. There you go. No, I had actually read the article. I just (laughs) want to hear it again. (laughs) Great. Okay. uh, I've got got somebody over here and somebody over here. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Thank you for your talk, first of all. Uh, In the last couple points that you talked about, you you said that there needs to be a focus on, the powers need to have a focus on the region. America needs to stop meddling in the Middle East and so on. And another point you said is that we need to see how these permutations of capitalism play out uh, because no one knows right now. But given all the rhetoric and the focus on the globalized marketplace and globalization as a driver of economic growth for all these powers, uh, I pick up on a conflict there in that if they're supposed to focus on the region, how can they simultaneously focus in a global marketplace? Hmm.
0: Okay. And yeah. can I be? Yeah,
2: please. Well, uh, talks like these, uh, there's always a smug IR undergraduate who's r- just read waltz and absolutely fascinated by, by him. And I'd like to make the... Well, that's you, well, is it? Yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm playing the devil's... <laughs> <laughs> no! I, 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 I can avoid that one. I'm <laughs> play, <laughs> playing the devil's advocate here and I'd like to make the neorealistic challenge. Uh, I appreciate your ideas on, on, on the social fabric of the international society but um, because it's very inte- in intuitively appealing. But I'd just like to hear you reiterate um, that um, defense for post-positivism and, and kind of explain why it matters that um, if the United States might lose its social standing. Thank you.
1: I'm not quite sure of this question, why it matters If the U.S. loses its social standing? Yes, because the
2: materialist challenge would be that it doesn't matter because it's just material power um, that that dictates whether a state is a superpower or not because it's not popularity context. Back back
0: to Kenneth, back Uh to Kenneth, to Waltz. What's wrong with Waltz, Barry? You want me to ask? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs)
1: okay the question about the contradiction between the regional um, the regional focus on the one hand um, and uh, the need for a global economy on, on the other um, i don't I don't see this as, as really um, a great difficulty I mean for, Think of the EU. I mean, the EU has a, quite a strong regional focus in one in one sense, and is engaged in the global economy in another. And the same is true for uh, most of the countries in, uh, in East Asia. I think this is a circle that can be squared. I am um, all in favour of competition to figure out which system works best. Um, and in and in that sense, you know, that makes. Uh, a certain amount of difficulty for a global set of rules, but since there is, I think, a fairly strong interest in keeping um, a global economy going in some, uh, in some quite meaningful sense, um, it seems to me that solutions to this will be found much along the lines that they have been found already. There's an awful lot of accommodation to um, regional variation in this system already. Now, the, the question about um, you know, material power is all, uh, is all that counts. Um, I mean, to be frank, I find it a little bit hard to take that seriously, um, because it, it rather supposes that the political world is entirely about coercion. Right? Um, and I simply don't believe that the political world on any level is entirely about coercion. And if it is, it's stupendously inefficient. Um, I mean, this was, in a sense, the uh, the hypothesis driving some of the neocons in in the Bush administration. You can find lots of quite good quotes. You know, that by God, we're now powerful as hell, and it's our time, and we're going to do whatever we like out here because it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Well, hello. Mm -hmm. Um, That was put to a fairly firm test, and it actually turned out to matter. What? Other people think. So, if you want to run a world, whether globally or um, uh, uh, domestically, scale, I think, doesn't matter on this. If you're trying to run such a world entirely on the basis of coercion and material power, it is stupendously inefficient. And you will eventually lose out to those who've got a better idea and get people to like
0: them. Okay, I've got somebody in the middle there. Yep, really here. Yeah, please, yeah. Uh, f- yep. my,
3: my question is would the weight of numbers even out with reference to a measuring instrument that is money and the main consideration okay. so that i'm referring to currency yeah you got
0: it no could you say that again sorry it's very difficult could sure. you speak yeah. sorry can't hear you
3: um, yeah if, if if we're thinking about what money is would the weight of numbers even out with reference to a measuring instrument that is money that's um, entries into uh, accounts. Um, it's it's like the main consideration in the system.
0: Uh-huh. Okay.
3: Money known as numbers. Okay. Would, would the currency? Are you numbers of what? Numbers. Oh, like just money and money. Money. Yeah. Right. So I'm referring to currency. Yeah.
0: yeah. Bring in bring in some currency. Yeah. <laughs> Got it.
3: I am doing some research into what money is, so I'm introducing a right. new idea. So right. it's, Barry's it's very
0: good at money. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Doesn't have much. In, in that case, can <laughs> okay. I ask
3: the definition
0: for money? Okay, all right. right. Well, okay, and then we had another. Was, was somebody else's hand in the middle? Yeah, yeah. Please work on that yeah, one, Thank you
3: for your um, presentation, Professor Buzan. Uh, my question is regarding the conditions enabling the emergence of. Uh, this endangered endangered, uh, species of superpowers that uh, you talked about. Um, I had the impression that you said um, the conditions enabling this emergence were actually brought about by the major transformations um, of of the industrial revolution. Um, So is the take home message from this that uh, this is a one-off to see such um, uh, superpower, or that these conditions are to be found only in the initial stages of um, of any
0: new epoch, in a way uh, that is characterized by new mode, modes of pr- production. Okay, you it, right? uh, Yeah. Okay, Robert right, We take two then. I think that will have to be the last two. I'm simply worrying about the time. I know, must apologise. Everybody's had their hand up. One more person at the back, actually. Just, just one last one. Please. Professor
3: up. Baden, thank you very much for your lecture. Just a quick question, which is, um, whilst we have the power decentralizing on a global and presumably also local level, for example, through, we can see that with the localism bill in the UK, what do you think, could you share your, your opinion on what effect this will have on the relationship between culture and international society? Thank you very much.
0: Okay, that's three to three to end with Barrett. Okay. Okay. All right. Start with the money.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> I'm not sure I have anything to say about um, oh. about about the money. Um, I'm, I'm not an economist, and that sounded to me, if I understood it correctly, to be a rather technical question um, yeah. about the state of the of the world economy. Um, and. I'm not going to bore you by pretending I have a coherent answer to that, so I'm going to pass. Uh, uh, on this. Do an un- um, incoherent
0: answer. I do it all the time. time yeah,
3: no, no.
1: <laughs> but it's not my style. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll then take the advantage to, to take twice as long to answer Brahim's question, on which I could talk for hours sure. about the condition of the uh, emergence of superpowers. I mean. To put it in as as small a nutshell as I can manage, um, this would be about what you might want to think of as a change in the dominant mode of production, something which happens rather infrequently in the human condition, um, but when it does, changes everything. Um, In the sense that uh, if you look at what happened after the shift from hunter-gathering to um, agrarian mode of production. There were fantastic changes: rise of cities, expansions of population, um, all kinds of new ideas and ways of uh, and ways of doing things. Um, these things don't happen very often. The 19th century was uh, another one: the change from an agrarian mode of production, which had been dominant for millennia, um, to an industrial one, and this completely changed the mode of power. Um, it Changed the uh, the political construction. It changed the social construction. It changed the economic construction. It changed the nature of the technology prevailing. It therefore, changed everything about power in uh, in a very big uh, uh, and dramatic way. These things don't happen very often. Um, so I'm not anticipating another one just around the corner. We seem still to be unfolding. I mean, in in this world historical sense, we are. Um, not very far away from this transformation. We are still living inside the early stages of it. If you want to look back on it um, from a far point in the, um, in the future, um, it's like as if we were just at the beginning of the rise of cities, or just at the beginning of the, uh, the shift to, uh, agricultural production. So this one probably has a long way to go. Um, and therefore, we have lived through a remarkably dramatic event. But since we've grown up inside it, uh, we both as individuals and also international relations as a field, has grown up inside that event, it looks normal. And what I'm trying to persuade people is to step outside of it, um, take a longer view of it, and see that it's not normal. Um, It's extremely abnormal and and represents a very uh, unusual, therefore, set of conditions. Um, At the back about the effect of this distribution of power on um, culture and international society. Um, I think this is a, it's a mixed picture uh, in the sense that uh, I'm assuming that the rise of the rest um, is going to act to diversify culture. More in sense, one is moving away if I can mention the Star Trek model again, one is moving away from the idea of some kind of universal liberal um, all american style social and political and economic model for the world, um, and also uh, away from you know a world in which everybody speaks um, English and uh, dresses and behaves like Americans would do um, so i 'm assuming that the rise of uh, of power in a variety of other areas will also empower or re-empower um, a variety of other cultures. And in that sense, um, things become culturally more diverse. But I'd also put quite a lot of emphasis on the argument that I made in a rather sketchy way in the talk. That there is you know, the le- one of the legacies of the period of, of Western hegemony is that there is quite a remarkable and quite powerful substrate of shared ideas, including really big ideas like nationalism, which we all share. I mean, the thing about nationalism is, two centuries ago, nobody had ever heard of it. And it wasn't really in play in international society. And then the French invented it um, and showed everybody what a great idea it was, or at least showed everybody how much power it generated. Um, And now we uh, we all live with it. And it feels totally natural. So if you go um, to the heartlands of China, um, or to uh, Brazil, or anywhere in the world, you'll find that nationalism is as naturalized as football. Nobody thinks of football as being an English game, and nobody thinks of nationalism as being a French idea. They are totally naturalized. And I think this provides an important common social substrate, which we can build on.
0: Okay, I think we will call it to an end there, terrific. Um, They always say that when you have exams going on at the LSE, you get very low numbers. Well, I think we've disproven that tonight and attest to the pulling power of Um, Now, I promised uh, Barry I would not use the phrase swan song when describing tonight's lecture, but I have, and it has been. Um it's on uh, a personal note at least I should end. Um, it's been great fun working with Barry, especially in the joint f- in the joint course we teach in the, for the first year. Interestingly entitled The Structure of International Society, which I think was first given that name by a man called Charles Manning, who many some in this audience may know about, but who was a, a very dominant figure in the IR department for over thirty years. So Barry it's been fantastic for me working and lecturing alongside you. They say you're retiring but I don't believe it, but you tell me it's not really retirement, but uh, we'll, we'll wait and see anyway. I will certainly miss working with you. I know you, the colleagues in the LSE Department of International Relations will miss having you around. However, I do look forward to having lots of good meals with you and Deborah over the coming weeks and years. And you can pay, because even if you couldn't answer the question on money, We can talk about that one later on. But anyway, (laughs) um, it's been fantastic. A great turnout, a great lecture, and I think we should show our profound appreciation to Professor Lee.